Well, hello everybody. Uh, greetings to you in Mafra. Uh, nice to be back with you. Uh, it'll be even better when I can be there in person, I, I hope, uh, one day. Uh, but I hope you're going okay with this uh, coronavirus lockdown, whatever shape that's taken for you. And I trust that um, you're keeping strong in the Lord Jesus and not giving in to doubt or despair, but um, uh, realising that uh, in him we have a living hope uh, that, that transcends uh, this world. So let's pray and then let's come again to the book of Isaiah. Let, let's uh, commit ourselves to God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the riches that it contains. We thank you that this is a word that inspires hope in us, uh, that grants us confidence uh, as we wait for you to fulfill all your good purposes in the world. We thank you that this is the word that uh, speaks of your son, uh, our saviour. And so we pray that you would help us to come reverently and expectantly to your word today. Uh, we ask that you would help us to be uh, careful in our hearing uh, and we pray that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Uh, teach us, uh, rebuke us, correct us and train us in righteousness, we pray, and all these things uh, for the sake of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, if someone said to you, what's the Bible about, what would you say? If you said to someone, I've been reading the Bible, and they said, what's it about? What would you say? What would be your summary? Well, it might go something like this. The Bible is the story of what God is doing to restore his righteous rule of justice and peace on the earth. God made the world. He made the world for with people in it to live in relationship with him. And the Bible pictures God as being the world's true king. And we're supposed to be subject to him. And when we are subject to him we and, and living by his word, we'll discover that life actually works out to our advantage it works very well so the bible is the story of god restoring his righteous rule his rule of peace in a world that's turned its back on him so we saw that first in the garden of eden and it manifests itself all the way through the bible story a picture of people rebelling against god and god saving some some who'll come to him well god chose to work through people in history and so he called Abraham and he promised Abraham many descendants and he said that those descendants would dwell in a land in perfect safety and they'd have that land. And so his descendants became known as Israel. Israel lived in the land that God had given them and they were given God's law and they were told that if they lived by God's law that they would uh, be there permanently. Their crops would never fail, there'd be no poverty among them. It would be an almost, almost a return to Eden. And yet his people didn't keep his law. And so over the years, God raised up people to remind them of the things that his law said so that they could stay there in the land. But they didn't. Now, these people were called prophets, and the prophet's role was to remind the people of what God had previously said. So some people, some scholars have said that the prophets are covenant spokesmen. They don't really add new material. What they're doing is reminding of the things that are already there. Now we've been looking at the uh, the book of Isaiah and today we're going to start at chapter 8 verse 11 but that jumps a little bit from where we left off last time. And so I'd like to fill in a little bit of the gap uh, just to prepare the way for what we're to look at today. And I hope that you have read Isaiah uh, 8, 11 to chapter 9 verse 7 already. Uh, I don't intend to reread it in one big go. I'll look at it, it, it in chunks. But it would be good if you've read it all. And it would be even better if you'd read chapter 7 all the way through to chapter 9, verse 7. That will fill in the gap between where we were last time and where we're going today. Now, I've said previously that Isaiah is a book that balances threat and promise. So you've got the threat of judgment. You've got the promise of salvation. And Isaiah oscillates between those two. The early part of the book is mainly threat. The later part of the book is mainly promise. 
Uh, but you'll find intermingled all the way through. Now, Isaiah prophesied in 740 BC through to about 700 BC, and that's about 200 years after Israel, the nation that God had raised up for his own glory, Israel was divided. Uh, so after the reign of King Solomon, his son uh, Rehoboam made a very bad political decision, and the ten northern tribes separated away uh, and became known as Israel, and the southern tribe became known as Judah. Uh, so 740 to 700 BC is the period of Isaiah's prophecy, about 200 years after that terrible division of the kingdom. Now in 722 BC, the northern kingdom, which had as, as its capital Samaria, it fell to the rampaging Assyrians. Now Israel was surrounded by hostile neighbours, and at various times some of them grew more or less powerful. So Egypt was in the background in the early part of the Bible story, but at this point, when Isaiah's prophesying, the dominant world power is Assyria. And they're a, they're a, a, a tyrannical regime uh, where they went imposed fear on the people who they went to. So Judah is at risk. Uh, and Isaiah's are prophesying to a people that are at risk because of their idolatry. They're worshipping gods other than Yahweh, the one true God. They are worshipping him to an extent, but it's a hypo hypo hypocritical religion that they're practising. They're still going ahead with sacrifices and turning up to the temple, but their heart isn't in it because they really prefer the worship of idols. Now, because they've turned their back on God's law uh, and they're living their own way, their society is characterised by injustice. There's a terrible imbalance between those who are rich and those who aren't. Uh, theirs is a violent culture where the poor are being treated very uh, harshly. Uh, and as well as that, these people are just complacent. They don't care about God, really, and that's a dangerous way to live. Now, in Isaiah chapter 3, verses 9 to 11, we read there that the people of Jerusalem, where Isaiah's prophesying, proclaim their sin like Sodom. They don't hide it. So they're not even ashamed of what they're doing. They've brought evil on themselves. That's a word of judgment. But then in verse 10, this lovely promise, Tell the righteous it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. So here we're seeing there's people who have chosen the way of righteousness and there's people who have chosen the way of wickedness. So verse 11 of chapter 3 goes on, Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him. So it will be well for the righteous, but it will be ill for the wicked. In chapter 5, 24 to 25, we read a summary of all that's wrong in Jerusalem. They have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. Now remember that God has given them hundreds of years to change their minds. He's given them a good law, a law which works out in practice if they obey it, but they haven't. They've turned their back on him. He's given them hundreds of years of grace, but now he's announced that judgment is coming. So in chapter 6, after the introductory chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah is called to, uh, to a, um, a, a prophetic mission. He's allowed a vision of Yahweh, of hosts, and, and he says, Holy, holy, holy is Lord God Almighty. Uh, and, and having seen that vision of Yahweh, he, he pronounces a woe on himself. He's reminded of his sinfulness, but his, his sin is atoned for as uh, an angelic being is sent to, uh, to purify him. But Yahweh commissions him to go with his word to a people that are deaf and dumb and blind. They're people who are hard of heart, determined to continue in their stubborn rebellion. So then we get to chapter 7, and we read there a historical marker. So I hope you like history. You need to, because God has worked in history. And if you want to understand the Bible, and I hope you do, you need to get your head around some of the history, because God has chosen to work with people 
as his agents in space and in time. And so we hear, read here in Isaiah chapter 7, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Isaiah, king of Judah, Rezin the king of Syria, and Pekah the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but they could not mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. I've never lived in a country with hostile neighbours planning a big military invasion. I wonder if you have. Probably not. But it would be terrifying, wouldn't it, knowing that a large hostile army was massing at your borders and they intend to crush you? Well, no wonder the heart of the house of David is shaking. But this is not something that uh, is, uh, is unable to be confronted. And so Isaiah has a task. Now, what was going on here? This is 735 BC. Israel, the northern kingdom, has taken league with Syria, not Assyria, but Syria, a smaller neighbour up there, and they want to unite with other nations in the area to defend themselves against the march of the Assyrians. And they've invited Judah to, re to join in this little league of nations, but Judah's refused. So they're taking revenge on Judah. Uh, they're taking revenge on the kingdom ruled by King Ahaz. And so Isaiah has a message for King Ahaz. In chapter 7, verse 4, seven, verse four he says, Do not fear. He says in verse 7, It shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. And he goes on to point out uh, what actually took place in time. Assyria, and, uh, and Assyria defeated Syria in 732 BC, and then Israel lost all of her northern territories, and then eventually the city of Samaria was taken in 722 BC. So this should be a warning to the people of Judah. This should have been a warning to King Ahaz. God has dealt with the northern kingdom for their idolatry. You'd better straighten up and fly right. And so in chapter 7, verse 9, Isaiah says to King Ahaz, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Now, King Ahaz was anything but firm in faith. And so we get to chapter 7, verse 10, and we see there the sign of Emmanuel. These are quite famous words from the book of Isaiah. And so at chapter 10, Isaiah says to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. But Ahaz says, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now he was quoting a verse from the book of Deuteronomy, and it's as though he's saying, I'm a very pious man, Isaiah. You can't fool me. I won't put God to the test. Well, it wasn't because it was pious. It was because he was a man with no faith. Look what 2 Chronicles 28 verses 1 to 4 says about Ahaz and his reign. 2 Chronicles 28. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even made metal images for the Baals, and he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and burned his sons as an offering according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out. So Ahaz is a shocker. He's a bad king. He's just like the northern kings who were idolaters. He wasn't refusing a sign from Yahweh because of his piety. He was refusing a sign from Yahweh because he had other plans. You can read about them in Second Kings 16. He was going to do business with Assyria. He was going to become a vassal. He was going to become a client state of the mighty Assyrian Empire in return for them leaving him alone. So verse 14 of chapter 7, 
Isaiah says to him, all right, if you don't want a sign, Yahweh will give you one. And the you there is plural, meaning the whole house of David. And that sign in verse 14 is, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, you look at the footnote there, it means God with us. And so Isaiah is prophesying a day when God will be present with his people as a human, as a person, God with us. Now we won't find out more about Emmanuel until chapter 9, so you'll have to wait till a little bit later in this message. God will use an infant to restore his people, not an army, or at least not an Israelite army. So salvation will be coming through the most unexpected of sources, a virgin giving birth to a child. But judgment will come for his kingdom through another nation's army. And so in verse 17, the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people the king of Assyria. So the the bloke that you think you're going to go into business with, he's actually going to come and wipe you out. And so verse 18 says, in that day the Lord will whistle. It's like God's going to go, come up. And call the Syria over. You see, all of the nations of the earth are in God's hands. They do his bidding, whether they know it or not. And so God is going to use Assyria. So go to, uh, move down to chapter 8, verse 5 to 8. The Lord spoke to me again, this is to Isaiah, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently, skip a bit, therefore behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. It will overflow and pass on reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Yes, it's going to come into Emmanuel's land. This river is actually going to be a torrent. It's going to be an army, the army of the king of Assyria. And so it's wiped out the northern kingdom. Samaria is no more by this time. But it's going to come, and the army of the king of Assyria is going to be like this wild river in flood, and it will come even to the neck of the people of Judah. Now that means they're not going to completely drown, but boy, are they going to be tossed about by it. So Ahaz has rejected God's quiet help, like the the waters of Shiloh. Uh, He's rejected God's sign. But he's gone to the most evil empire around in those days to fight evil with evil. And so by doing that, Judah is going to find itself in the very path of the flood that she had herself unleashed. So to chapter 8, verse 11, and this is where we really start looking at our scripture today. Chapter 8, uh, chapter eight of Isaiah, verses 11 to 15, and I've given this section a title, Don't Fear, Do Fear. So when is fear healthy and when is it not? When is it right to fear and when is it not? Let's have a look. Chapter 8, verse 11. The Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honour as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offence and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. So there's two ways to live. You can live by God's promise, or you can accept the threat of God's judgment. You can be one of the righteous who can look forward to a future of salvation, or you can be one of the wicked who will come 
under judgment. Now, not all of Israel is going to, or not all of Judah is going to harden the heart. Uh, some will remain faithful. Some are being preserved by God. These people are known as the remnant. They're the ones who remain. It's a small fraction of the people who lived in Jerusalem at that time. But in verse 11, there's a picture here of people who are going with the flow. They're just going along with that life as it is. It's ever so easy, isn't it? Um, but God honours those who walk according to his way, not the world's. So how are they going about this? How are they going with the flow? Well, they're calling conspiracy. So Isaiah says, don't call conspiracy all that these people call conspiracy. Now that word conspiracy there is a reference to the treasonous act of going to another nation to help with your defence. And that's because they're scared. They're fearful. Now who should they be scared of? Who should they be fearful of? They should be fearful of Yahweh, according to verse 13, because he's Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, which is literally the Lord of heaven's armies. He has a massive force at his disposal. All the way along, the Bible story says, don't make treaties with other people. Let your trust be in God and God alone. God who's revealed himself as the one who makes promises and keeps them, Yahweh, Yahweh of hosts. Now, what are they to do in verse 13? They're to set him apart as holy. They're to honour him as pure and perfect in character, the one whose eyes are too pure to look on sin. They're to worship Yahweh alone without compromise and no rivals. Uh, New Testament Christians that are instructed to do the very same thing, we're told that we mustn't be conformed to this world, uh, but we've got to be transformed by the renewing of our mind in Romans 12 verse 2. But we face the same pressures, don't we? We face the same pressures of going with the flow. Uh, it's not just kids at school who put up with peer group pressure. Wherever you are, if you're surrounded by other people, there is this human desire to not stand out, to not be too different. It takes a lot of guts to stand out. And so most people are pretty happy just to submerge and fit in and not be noticed. We like to be popular. We like to be, well, normal. But there's aspects of living for the Lord Jesus that will make us abnormal. There'll be certain things that we don't do. There'll be certain things that we don't like. That'll amount to our habits, our TV watching, our reading. Uh, the things that other people regard as normal we'll have to depart from at some point. Going with the flow is something that is not uh, an option for Christians. And so here they are. They're faced with the prospect of um, of a disrupted international scene and they know from the scriptures if they've been paying any attention to them at all but Isaiah's reminding them they put, must put their trust in Yahweh alone but they're saying no we'll make a treaty with our greatest enemy and see if they'll back off on us their trust was elsewhere now notice that Isaiah says don't call conspiracy what others call conspiracy that's the going with the flow just doing what's normal doing what seems natural might even seem logical we're faced with conspiracy theories, aren't we? Uh, with this COVID-19 all around us and uh, the various attempts by governments to limit our behaviours, limit our freedoms to get on top of the thing, however that might come about. Uh, but you'll hear people, if you're active on social media, which I'm not, I just hear this from other people, but evidently there's people around saying that it's a government plot, it's a, it's a deliberate attempt to subvert our freedoms. Uh, well, who knows? I'm not sure. Uh, but I, I think to myself, what can I do? What can you do? But one thing is for sure, we've got to be careful that we don't fear as the world fears. Because our fear is to be in Yahweh alone. Now Psalm 19 verse 9 says that the fear of Yahweh is clean. 
It's good for us. It's healthy. So what does healthy fear look like? Well, some years ago, I was invited by a couple of friends to go rock climbing with them. And uh, we climbed 130 metres in seven pitches. And there were times when I really wondered if we'd bitten off more than we could chew. I was a novice. I was brand new at this. And the other two were good. Now, I was between them and I was roped. I was secure on the rock, but I was terrified. And at the end of it all, having got to 130 metres, to get off that rock, we had to do an abseil. Uh, and the first abseil I had ever done was 50 metres down a vertical drop. All I had between me and certain death was a rope and gravity. Uh, and I was, I was scared, let me tell you. Now, I saw my friend go down and do it, and they, they'd done it many times, so I, I knew in theory that, that this, this thing worked. But anyway, we got down, the abseil worked, and there I was, and I'm here to tell you the story. Uh, but I said to my friend Mike, who took me, I said, um, do you ever stop being scared? And he said, the day you stop being scared is the day you should give up. Because you see, the thing is, if you're going to enjoy rock climbing, you need to have a healthy fear. You need to have a healthy fear of the things that could go wrong. And it's like that with God. We're not scared of him necessarily. Fear is much bigger than just that craven fear. But fearing God means being reverent towards him, understanding who he is and what he could do to us if we meet him in the wrong way. Fear of God is understanding that he's God and we're not. Fear is the appropriate response. It's a, another way of saying reverence or faith or trust. Have you ever read uh, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis? There's a wonderful, I think, description of, of the fear of Yahweh in this book. Now, if you know the story, uh, the four Pevensey children have come through the wardrobe. They've gone into the magical land of, As of uh, Narnia and uh, they've become part of uh, uh, a plan to unseat the, the wicked white witch and restore the, right, the rightful ruler of Narnia, Aslan. And they keep hearing about Aslan, but they don't know who he is. But eventually, as the book unfolds, they discover that Aslan is not a man, but he's a lion. And so when Susan, one of the four children, hears this, she says, Ooh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And they're talking to Mrs Beaver because all the people in the, animal, in, the, in the story are animals. And Mrs Beaver says, Oh, that you will, dearie, and no mistake. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or, or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy, Susan's younger sister. Safe, said Mr Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So I think that's a wonderful picture of fearing Yahweh. He's not safe, but he's good. He's dependable. He's trustworthy. Now what does it mean to, to trust? Well, in my case, rock climbing, it means believing that the rope will hold me. Now, there's two levels at which I believe it. I believe it because I've seen my friend commit himself to it and I've read about rock climbing and I know that these ropes are good ropes and they'll do it. But when is the trust actual in my life? It's when I'm clipped on and when I've gone over the edge of this 50-metre vertical drop. And I need to tell you, before we began, I noticed all these plaques at the bottom of the cliff that had names on it. One of them was the name of a boy who was a year behind me at school. That got me thinking. But trust is actual... Faith is real when you put it into practice. I can believe about the rope, 
but I'm only trusting in the rope when I've gone over the edge and I've got nothing but, but, but the law of nature between me and the bottom. When is our faith in God real? It's when we put it into practice. It's not believing about God. It's saying, yes, God, you're real, you're true, and I accept your word and I will live by it. Now, this world is an unsafe place and we might think that the sensible thing is to fight battles according to the world's wisdom. That always ends in failure. If you are a person of faith, you must put your trust in Yahweh. You must put your trust in God. Believe his word. But look what happens when you do. Verses 14 to 15 give us this two ways to live idea again. You'll find that Yahweh will be for you a refuge in verse 14. He will become a sanctuary. So he will be a place where you can find peace and safety. But he'll also be a stone of offence and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. A trap and a snare. You will either find Yahweh to be your safety and protection, your security, or you'll discover him to be a stone over which you stumble. He'll either be your rock of refuge or your ruin, says Derek Kidner. So healthy fear is what we need to have. Fear of Yahweh, reverent trust in the God who wants to save us but he wants us to live his way. Verses 16 to 22 talk about that healthy fear and it shows us what it looks like. It waits and it hopes in God and it inquires of God. So verse 16, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. So here we have a picture of this, the, the word of God being a scroll, being sealed up. Uh, bind up the testimony means um, don't change it seal it up seal up the teaching means don't add to it so we don't pull anything out we don't add anything to it who's speaking here bind up the testimony seal the teaching among my disciples it could be Isaiah but it could be Yahweh I, I suspect it might be Yahweh speaking and notice there that he's looking for people to be his disciples disciple means a learner it, it's more than just a follower it means someone who learns from the master someone who imitates the way of the master in their life as they follow so Yahweh's looking for disciples he's looking for people who will learn for him from him and so Isaiah adds then I will wait for the Lord now Yahweh is hiding his face from the house of Jacob because they've sinned and and turned his face away but there are some who want to seek his face and so Isaiah says I will wait for the Lord it's, it's believing it's waiting for God to do all that he's promised but down um, in verse 19 now when they all the other people around who whose flow you want to go with or they want to go with when they say to you inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter now these mediums and necromancers are occult they're occultists a necromancer is a person who seeks answers from the dead this was satanic inspired um, occult divination finding the future in all sorts of odd ways when that says that they chirp and mutter that was the characteristic speech that they went on with it was this trance that they went into and so there are some around who are saying they're the people to go to if you want guidance on what the future looks like so when people say to you inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter Isaiah asks should not a people inquire of their god 
Should they inquire of the, of the dead on behalf of the living? If you have a living God, the Lord of heaven's armies, why would you go to dead bodies to ask for guidance about the future? Does that make sense? And it might be popular, it might be what everybody else is doing, but it makes no sense at all. But it makes God your enemy. It's a very unsafe way to be. No, says Isaiah, his answer is in verse 20, to the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. So Isaiah is certain of that testimony that Yahweh spoken of in verse 16. The testimony, the truth about Yahweh, his, his word, his law, his teaching. That's where truth is found. That's where we can find the safe road to navigate our way through an uncertain future. And notice this here, this, this is one you need to highlight or underline or memorise or something from your Bible. If they will not speak according to this word. So that becomes the great test of all Christian ministry. Are the people bringing God's word to you speaking according to it or are they making up stuff out of their own imagination? If they speak not according to this word, why? It's because they have no dawn. Now what's a day without dawn? Think about it. There's an image there. What is a day without a dawn? Per permanent night. Permanent darkness. So people who come with a message which is not anchored in God's word are asking you to invite, they're inviting you to join them in a life of permanent darkness. Two ways to live. You can live Yahweh's way where your reverent fear for him expresses itself in patient waiting and fervent hoping in him to keep his promise. And so the way of those who go with the mediums and the necromancers is doomed. It's, it's one of darkness. Look at verse 22. They will look to the earth that behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. To go the world's way, to seek the wisdom that the world admires, is to turn your back on Yahweh, the one who knows the future. So into chapter 9, this healthy, reverent fear of Yahweh, the promise-making and the promise-keeping God, it leads to light and it leads to life. So verse 9, a very famous, this is a famous passage often read at Christmas time, but it was said to people who needed to work out whether their allegiance was with Yahweh or the ways of the world. Were they going to pin their hopes on another country's army or were they going to put their faith and trust in the God who'd rescued them from Egypt all those years ago. Chapter 9, verse 1, There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now Zebulun and Naphtali were two of the original twelve tribes of Israel. They were two of the northernmost tribes and they went, when the kingdom separated, they went with the northern tribes. Uh, they were part of Israel, sometimes known as Ephraim. But they fell to Assyria within months of Isaiah speaking to King Ahaz. They were amongst the first parts of the northern kingdom to fall to the rampaging Assyrian military. But Isaiah says here that they'll be amongst the first to see the glory of God in the future. Now, does Galilee ring a bell? That's where Jesus began his prophetic ministry when he came. 
Uh, he was the light of God coming into the world. He began his public ministry in Galilee. Did the people recognise him? Well, not many did. But nonetheless, that prophecy came true. But then we go on and we, we find that there's a future hope for the faithful remnant, for that righteous group. The, the, Tell the righteous it should be well, I shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Here's hope for those who are committed to waiting and hoping and trusting in Yahweh. There's a glorious future. Verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. There's a sense in which the remnant will pay a price for for being around all these people that have gone against Yahweh. They're going to they're be living while Yahweh punishes them. And so they'll be plunged into the punishment that, that they don't deserve on their own account because they've been faithful, but Yahweh will punish the nation en masse. But those people who've walked in the darkness of the punishment that comes because of other sins will see that great light. Uh, there'll be a light that shines on them. Now the darkness will be dispelled. The darkness that we read of, that the, the worshippers or, the, or the, the people who consult the mediums and the necromancers, they're plunged into this deep, impenetrable darkness, the, the, the day with no dawn. Uh, but look at verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So this is the, the remnant that's grown in number. Abraham was promised descendants uh, like to the, 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 as numerous as the stars in the sky in Genesis chapter 15. So this remnant's been multiplied into a great nation. And it's not just a great nation, it's a joyful nation. They're going to rejoice just like they do when they have a good harvest. Um, how's this going to be? Well, we find the word for at the beginning of the next three verses. For, this is the explanation of how the, the light is going to come, about how the joy is going to be restored to this multiplied nation. How is all this going to come about? Verse 4, the yoke of his burden. For, the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. That speaks of an end to oppression. It's an end to that foreign domination of nations like Assyria and later on the, the Babylonians and the Persians. It's going to come to an end. Verse 5, For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. That's a pet poetic image of an end to warfare. There's going to come a day when peace will be established permanently and where warfare will no longer exist. And it's going to come through... Verse 5, for to us a child is born. It won't come through the force of arms of, of, of a nation's military. It's going to come because a child enters the world. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. How will this come about? The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. That's something worth waiting for. That's something worth trusting in. That's something that you can build your hopes for the future on. The zeal of the Lord will do this. Because you see, this is Emmanuel. This is God with us. 
this wonderful counsellor, this mighty God, this everlasting Father, this Prince of Peace. This is the child that's born in answer to the prophecy of chapter 7 that Ahaz the king rejected. He didn't want to know. But how will God restore the world to his perfect rule? It will come with the birth of a child. It will come with the birth of a child who is announced in the future as being a wonderful counsellor, a mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. They're all divine terms. Wonderful is a term that gets attached to God in Isaiah 28. We read that he's wonderful in counsel. That's God, the Lord of hosts. And now we find this child is going to have that attribute. In chapter 10, verse 21, we read of a, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, who too? To the mighty God. This child is going to be a wonderful counsellor, like Yahweh. He's going to be the mighty God, like Yahweh, the God of Jacob. He's going to be an everlasting father. There's no exact parallel for that phrase elsewhere in, in the book of Isaiah. But who apart from God is everlasting? And not only that, this child is predicted as being a father. He's going to have a father-like concern for those who come under his care. But more than that, he's going to be the prince of peace. What that means is he's going to be a ruler who establishes a reign that any sensible person would want to live under. Because isn't that what we most deeply desire? Don't we don't most deeply desire to live at peace with ourselves and with our neighbours? So what's envisaged here is a perfect human and divine ruler. And that is Emmanuel, God with us, the, prophecy, the, the, the promise of chapter 7. Now, in verse 7 is the first clear prediction in the book of Isaiah that this coming ruler is going to be descended from David. In 2 Samuel 7, God promised David that he would never lack a descendant on the throne. But people must have wondered, well, how is that going to work out when so many of the kings in David's line were bad kings and eventually the, the nation of Judah was taken captive by, by uh, the Babylonians? Well, we have this vision of years down the track in the future of this one who is wonderful counsellor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, but he's going to reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom. David was the best king Israel could ever have imagined. He was not perfect. In fact, he was a long way short of it, but he was the best they could think of. But this one's the perfect king who's going to reign in David's line and according to the fulfilment of God's great promise. But isn't that what the world needs, a, a prince of peace, someone who can establish uh, a reign of peace? Um, we live in a democracy. How's it working? You might have your hesitations and doubts about it. But it's a lot better, I would say, than living under a tyranny where there's no freedom at all. But as we look around, do we see our democracy fraying somewhat? Are there threats to our democracy? You know, democracy is a pretty recent concept of the kind that we have, where ordinary people like us get to have a say in who leads us. Benjamin Franklin was uh, a great American and one of the architects of their de Declaration of Independence, um, a very famous inventor and writer and political thinker. But he once said that only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. As nations become corrupt and vicious, they have need of masters. Is our public morality increasing or decreasing? Are we as a nation becoming more virtuous or less virtuous. My judgment would be that public morality is on the decline and fairly rapidly too. And if our governments are reflections of the will of the people, where will that leave our democracy in the future? 
Now, I'm not saying we should topple it. I'm not saying we should overthrow it. What I'm saying is it's imperfect. And deep in our hearts, we know that things could and should be better. But we'll have to wait until the one who is wonderful counsellor, mighty God, everlasting Father and Prince of Peace, for that dream to become a reality. You see, for freedom, for justice, for righteousness to exist, we need a ruler who will impartially administer that justice, who will firmly and securely and justly and fairly limit and then punish the wicked and reward the righteous without any partiality, without any preference, without any ability to be bribed or bought. There's never been a leader like that. No one's ever lived under the reign of, of someone who administered justice perfectly. But that's why we need to be people who wait and who hope and trust in the word of Yahweh. That's why we need to take hold of his word and not depart from it. We need not to add to it. We not to, need not to take away from it. Because, you see, the reign of this righteous one will be for all who fear God, for all who've made him their sanctuary, for all of those who are waiting for him, who are trusting in him to, uh, to, to, to get the timing right. Our hope is in him. We're going to keep on feeding on his teaching and his testimony. We're not going to go with the ways of the world. We're not going to drift with the flow. We're not going to listen to the things that the world calls conspiracy. We're not going to give in to the things that cause others to fear. No, friends, we need to come to the world's one true God through Christ, the world's true light, the descendant of David, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. The ruler in the line of David who will put an end to war and establish a reign of perfect peace, wisdom, justice and righteousness. We need to pray to that end. The book of Revelation says, come Lord, pray, come Lord Jesus. But don't give in to what others call conspiracy. Don't fear what they fear. Do keep looking with faith, with hope, with trust, with reverent regard for the God who makes you. Depend on his word and live in hope that he will one day keep all of his promises. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we thank you for these things. These are powerful words. They speak to us very deeply. And we know that we're frail people, imperfect people, and we find it ever so easy to drift with the flow and to find ourselves being conformed to the ways of the world. Help us instead, with the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, to have a renewed mind after, uh, after the mind of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. But we would pray with saints of all the ages, come Lord Jesus, come and restore this creation. Come and establish uh, the perfect reign of your Father here on earth as Emmanuel, God with us. We ask that you would help us to remain faithful. We pray that even in the midst of various pressures and uh, various temptations to, to give up, we pray that you would keep us strong and keep us people of, of hope and, and uh, keep us people who live joyfully uh, so that our lives recommend the gospel to those amongst whom we live and work. So please help us, please keep us, and, and uh, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.